Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your love. Love that is deeper than we could ever imagine. Deeper than we could ever love. Love that was so, uh, so deep that, Lord, You sent Your Son to die for us. How amazing is Your wonderful love. Lord, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Without it, Lord, we would forever be lost. Let us never lose sight of the glory of Your grace. Teach us today, Lord, by Your grace. Teach us today about Your grace. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 2, continuing there. Titus chapter 2. Today we're looking at verses 11 through 15. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. As Paul continues to write this letter to Titus, the young man that he has left there at the church in, in Crete, to get things in order. So Paul has come through. He came through on a missionary journey. We believe it's his fourth missionary journey. After he got out of, of that first Roman imprisonment, he's gone through. He's taking the gospel to new lands, and he came down through Crete. And he preached the gospel on the island of Crete and uh, had quite a few converts. And so he leaves Titus behind to organize the church, to put elders in place, to get things set up. And he went on preaching the gospel in other parts of the, the land. So now he is writing to Titus to give Titus some authority. Titus is a young man, and uh, so some of the leaders there in the church, they're kind of thinking, well, why should we listen to you? <laughs> You're so much younger than we are. You're, yeah, why, wh wh what gives you the authority to tell us what to do? And so Paul is writing to Titus, I believe, to give Titus some, some authority to let the church there know that he is there under the authority of Paul, who is under the authority of Christ. And so that's one reason for the letter. Another reason is just to give Titus some instruction of what he is to do and how he is to do it. And so now today we come to this passage and we learn about God's grace. This is for the church. God's grace is for the church. So if you have found that place, stand with me if you will in reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. Well, two Sundays ago, the last time we were in Titus, uh, Paul kind of, he went through there, the beginning of chapter 2, he, he gives Titus some instruction about what he is to teach. He is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so what accords with sound doctrine then is that the older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. The older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. There's that word again. Pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, he tells him, urge young men to be self-controlled. And he goes on and tells Titus, show yourself to, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. For bondservants, he says, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And so he, last time that we were here, we, we saw some instruction. Here, here's what you t are to teach, and, and here's to be the outcome, what that produces, that kind of teaching produces. And now as we come to this paragraph, the last paragraph here in chapter 2, he gives why. All right? He gives the reason why. Now this is kind of, if you, if you watch, watch Paul and read Paul's letters, a lot of times what Paul does is he'll give the why first. He begins with the doctrinal instruction or the doctrinal lesson. Uh, here's, what God, who, here's who God is. Here's who we are. Here's what God has done for us. Now because of that, therefore, do this. But now in this letter, Paul kind of works backwards from his normal pattern and, and instead of giving the, the doctrinal uh, lesson and then what that produces, now he, he kind of reverses it and he gives, here's what you're to do, and now he comes to this, for, for, because. You do all of these things because of, of this, because of God's grace. Why should we live godly self-controlled lives why why should we do all of those things paul that's not what the world teaches us to do that's not what our neighbors do why should we live like that paul we have to ask that why should we live in such a way is it to win favor with god is that why we do it do we live godly, upright lives? Are we to strive for that because we want to win favor with God so we can say, look, God, look at me. Look at what I have done. Aren't you impressed? Shouldn't you reward me for the way I live? 
Well, absolutely not. Now, that's the view of all other religions. You look at Buddhism. Buddhism says that you're to live this good life and be in harmony and peace with all the world so that you can get to that place of Zen and be at peace and finally hit that, uh, what they call nirvana, that place of nirvana where it's just, you just kind of blend in, I don't know, you blend in with the universe or something, you, you find this ultimate uh, stage of peace and rest. And so, in that sense, you see, it's, you do good to win this kind of favor so that you can get rewarded for your good works. The same thing with Islam. Why do you do the things you do in Islam? So that you can win favor with God, so you can make it to heaven and you can have your 72 virgins or whatever, Right? You win that favor. And every other religion, Hindus, the same way. You live at peace with the world so that you can go up in, in class until finally you get to that godly class and, and you get out of the world. But that's not the way it is with Christianity. With Christianity, we don't do good works to win favor with God. Because as we see in Christianity, as we see and understand the truth of God's Word, we can't win favor with God. We're sinners. We've already sinned. We've committed sin against God, and that sin deserves punishment. And there's no way to undo our sin. So we, we don't do good, we don't live godly lives to gain favor with God. In other words, godliness does not produce God's grace. But what we see here in Paul's instruction to Titus is that God's grace is what produces godliness. It's God's grace that produces godliness in us. What a glorious truth. And so that's what we see here today. God's grace, that's what produces godliness we're to kind of just give into what god is doing in us when we come to faith in jesus christ this is that one of the the greatest doctrines that separates christianity from every other world religion is that god's grace comes first god's grace is what makes us able to live godly lives so Let's get into it then. We get into what Paul is saying here. The first thing that we see here in the text is that God's grace redeems us. God's grace redeems us. As he begins this paragraph, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, how did God's grace appear? God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ. We're getting ready to, to observe our Christmas season, to have Christmas. We're celebrating the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, His coming. The Lord God Almighty, who was in all of eternity, who created all things, He, he came and put on human flesh. Wow! 1 John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. 
That is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is, Jesus was there in the beginning, from the very beginning. In eternity past, Jesus was there. He was the full revelation of God back then. He was there with God. He was created with God. All things, it goes on in in verse 2 to tell us that all things were created through Him and for Him. And then in in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelled dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, in this world there are many men who would become gods. But there's only one God who became man. And you see, that's what the world has a problem with when they look at Christianity. What are you talking about? That God and all of His glory would set aside His glory and come to take on human flesh. This old corruptible flesh. What do you mean that God would do such a thing? You're crazy, Christians. You're out of your mind. That's blasphemy. Yet that's what Scripture tells us. That's what Scripture tells us that we could not We can in no way save ourselves. And God in His grace came down to this world. He came down to our level. He revealed the true nature of God in His completeness. He took on human flesh. He became just like one of us in the fullest. He bore all of our troubles, all of our sorrows. He was tempted just like we are tempted, yet without sin. God's grace was revealed when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this world and live among us to reveal the glory of God to us. The grace of God appeared and His Son, Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ also, He brought something with Him when He came. He didn't just appear to let us have that that full revelation of God. No, He brought something. He, He brought salvation for all people. He came for that purpose to bring salvation. To bring a way to God. Now, we need to, to make clear here, he says, bring salvation for all people. Now, some people would say that that all is all-inclusive. And so what you end up with is universalism, where everybody's saved, so why should we worry about any of this? Everybody's saved and he died for all people, then why should we worry about that? But that's not what this means. We see in other places that, that it can't mean that. The all means that he died for all kinds of people. Where the Jews thought that God was just for the Jews. Now when the Christ came and revealed himself, he opened up the view. It's not just for the Jews. But Christ died for all nations, tribes, tongues. He died for people from all around the world. And aren't we grateful for that as Gentiles? 
He brought salvation for all people. I'm thinking think about uh, just this morning as I was meditating on this further. It's brought to mind Luke chapter 2 when the angels came down and they visited the shepherds there in the field. And as they appeared to the shepherds there in the field, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news. I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom He is pleased. That is a statement of God's saving grace. Because dear friend, our sin, our rebellion against God, caused us to be at war with God, to be at enmity with God, to be in conflict with Him. How can He love a people who is in constant rebellion against Him? But Jesus Christ, God in, the, in human flesh, He came. He was born in Bethlehem. And to be humiliated further, He was laid in a water trough. <laughs> He came to bring peace, to bring salvation, to save us from the wrath and the anger of God because of our rebellion. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring peace. For God who was angry at us, for God who rightfully could have condemned us for all of eternity, to a devil's hell, for our rebellion, God sent His Son, Jesus, to come and bring peace. To save us from our own sin and rebellion. Oh, do you praise God for His grace? You didn't earn that favor. There's nothing that you did that would ever say, make God send His Son to die for you. He did it freely of His own will. You and I were, were bound to hell and happily going along our way to hell. We were happy in our rebellion. We were happy to live against God. And yet God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ appeared and Jesus Christ brought salvation for those who would be, believe. And Jesus Christ, He redeemed us. He redeemed us. Paul goes down a little bit there. We see this appearing in, in verse 14, that relative statement there, that relative clause. 
He talks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who, see, he's defining more, more specifically how he saves us, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ Jesus came to give himself for us, to redeem us. That word redeem, it means to, to liberate. To liberate, conceived of as redeeming a captured person by paying the price demanded for his return. So we have this imagery working here when we use that term redemption. You have a slave sold into slavery. That's where we were. Sold into slavery. We were slaves to sin. We couldn't help but sin. We couldn't help but be in rebellion against God because that was our very nature. But Christ came to redeem us, to, to get us out of our slavery. He redeemed us from our sin by paying the price. Paying the price by giving himself. What it says there. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. That's the beauty of this. That God not only would become flesh, but he would give himself. When he went there to Calvary's cross. And he laid himself there. He paid the price for our sin. He paid the price that was demanded for our rebellion. Taking upon Himself God's judgment. He paid the price so that we might have life in Him. He gave Himself to redeem us from lawlessness. To take us out of lawlessness out of our rebellion, and to purify for Himself a people. Now that, uh, look at that. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, that leads us to point number two. God's grace redeems us, but God's grace also reforms us. God's grace reforms us. This is the doctrine, that Christian doctrine of sanctification. That God's work in us, His salvation doesn't just end with that, uh, that moment when we come to faith in Christ. It doesn't just end there. You see that God's grace redeems us. That's the doctrine of justification. That's what happens when we come to faith in Christ. He redeems us from our sin. He pays the price so that God looks down upon us and He no longer sees our sin and our rebellion, but He sees the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ on us instead. That's justification. We are right before God. We are in right standing before God. But that God reforms us is the doctrine of sanctification. That not only does he, he make us right in the sight of God, but He begins to make us holy and righteous. He makes us godly. Even now. Even now. 
You see, he's working towards a day when we will become perfect in Christ. But that, that work even begins now in this life. You see, salvation is not just merely some kind of subjective experience. It's not just a subjective experience, this moment that we have and we feel warm and fuzzy and all of these things and, and then it's over and then we go on with life. No. Salvation is an objective reality. It's real. Something real takes place. Transformation begins and continues on for our life here on this earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's something real happens. It takes place. A transformation takes place when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. He sends the power of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit into our life to begin a work in us, to, to change us from the inside out. You see, legalism would say that we're saved from the outside in, and when we do works, we do works, we do works, and that saves us, and, and, and that changes us on the inside. But no, Christianity says it's the other way around. We come to faith in Christ, and, and God's grace enters in us through the Holy Spirit and begins to change us from the inside out. Transforms us, makes us new. We no longer do the things that we used to do. We no longer think the things that we used to think. Think about the potter's will. There the potter. He has us in his hands. And at one time we were pots of dishonor when Christ comes God takes that pot that clay and he he presses it back down and and starts reshaping it he reshapes us and he makes us into vessels for honorable use it's his hands that make us and shape us and make us new and he is working in us transforming us to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. As our text here tells us, look there, it says, first of all, training us. It is God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, the church, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The first thing that God's grace does to reform us, it begins to, to teach us to say no to worldliness. It teaches us to say no to worldliness. As we look at the world and see the world continuing its rebellion against God, God's Word begins to get into us. His Spirit gets into us and begins to train us and, and teach us to say no to worldliness. No to those ungodly passions and desires that, that these old bodies of flesh have. He changes our will. He changes our desires. Philippians chapter 2, verse three, or 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's working us to, to change both our will and to work. 
to change our desires, to change our want to. Right? When we were outside of Christ, we wanted to do all kinds of ungodly things. Worldly things, worldly passions look good to us. And we chased after those things. But when Christ comes into us, our desires begin to change. No, it's not all in an instant. One, one minute we're, we're this way, and the next minute we're like old St. Paul and, and all perfect, almost you know, just short of perfect, right? It's a process, but, but from that moment that we come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, He begins to work in us and begins to change our wants and our desires. And all of the worldly passions of this world become to look less attractive to us. When we begin to sin, it becomes to be hard on us, to bear on us. Because He has given us a heart that longs to please God. He teaches us to say no to worldliness and ungodliness, but He also teaches us to say yes to godliness. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So it's not just something that we have to look forward to in eternity. It's something that takes place now. We begin to do that now. You see, it's one thing when we begin to understand when we read Scripture more and more, especially in the New Testament, as we see Christ come and Christ is, is born, He dies, and He's raised again. But something that happens when Christ is raised again, He escorts in the new age. He escorts in the new age. Right now, is, we're, we're living in part of the new age. Now, it's not yet what it will be. One day he's bringing glory. He's going to return in glory and he's going to bring glory with him and make all things new. But what we see in Scripture in the New Testament is that he already begins to do that work in the lives of his people here and now in this world, in this age. You feel the power of God working in your life. You feel that transformation taking place in your life. God is preparing you for the age to come, making you like Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's grace redeems us. God's grace reforms us. And third, God's grace rewards us. God's grace rewards us. We've looked at the doctrine of justification. We've looked at the doctrine of sanctification. And now we see the doctrine of glorification. That day that is coming that God will make all things new. Look there in first verse uh, 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we're waiting for something. We know as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that this world is not the end of it. There's something greater yet to come. There's something greater yet to come. 
Uh, just recently read Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't know if you have ever read, read, read that book. It's, it's fairly good. It's, it's a secular book on, on business and leadership and, and uh, that sort of thing. He's not a Christian, or he wasn't a Christian. He's, he's passed away now. He was a Mormon, in fact. But truth is truth wherever you find it. All truth is God's truth. Even in the secular world, when truth is truth, it's God's truth. And you see that. It works its way out in the Bible. If you see something that's true in the world, it's true, you can see it in God's Word. And uh, habit number two of Covey's seven habits of highly effective people was live with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. In his view, you kind of take and you think about your end of your life when you die what do you want people to think about you and, and so when you think about that and then you begin to live your life according to what you want people to think of, of you when you die well that's a good way to live but christianity takes another step further jesus takes another step further paul takes it here another step further we don't look to the uh, the day of our death we go beyond that because we got more coming. What do you want your life to look like when you get to glory? In eternity, looking back, how do you want to, to see your life develop? You should live right now, not for tomorrow, not for the day of your death, but you should live for eternity. Look forward to that day of glory when Christ will return. What will you have done for the Lord? Scripture tells us that even we Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He will judge us. Not for our sin, but, but, but by what we have done in His name. Are you living for eternity? Paul says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. That's what we're living for. That's what we're living for. Not tomorrow, not next week, but for eternity. We live with eternity in mind. We look for God's blessed promise. A hope that we have, our blessed hope is not just an empty hope. Paul is looking at, he, he's talking about the blessed hope that we have, the hope of blessing that we have in God. God, God's Word from the very beginning begins to promise of a new day when God would make all things new again. After sin came into the world, Genesis chapter 3, we see right then when sin came into the world, immediately God began to promise one day, Eve, this sin and death is going to strike your heel, but one day you're going to have a seed going to crush the head of sin and death see he was beginning to promise to promise a future hope that sin and death would die and throughout all of scripture we have that looking forward to the day that god would make all things new once again and we followers of christ Continue to look for that day that God will make all things new. We look and live in anticipation for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For on that day, on that day, He will complete His work in us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Dear friend, as we get ready for Thanksgiving, as we get ready for Christmas, it's a time to, to look and to reflect and, and think about our lives. It's time to rejoice in God's grace. It's also a time to remember that we're not living for this world. As we pile up all of the gifts under the tree, we're not living for this world and all of those worldly things. In fact, those gifts under the tree are only a, a, a reminder of the greatest gift that we've ever received, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we don't live for this world, but we live for eternity. We live for a king who came and died, gave his life for us, and was raised again. We live for a king who is working in us to rule and to reign in us and to give us life everlasting. Oh, dear friend, we live for God's grace. God's grace. Church is at the center of everything that we do. We are redeemed by God's grace. We are reformed by God's grace. And we look forward to the reward that will be granted to us by God's grace. That's why Paul here tells Timothy in verse 15, <laughs> these are all imperatives here, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the center of everything. That God loved us and gave Himself up for us to redeem us, to make us new, to give us a future hope. That's the center of our message. That's at the center of everything that we do. It's not about all of the other things that we could build in here on it. This is the center. This is it. This is what we live for. This is what we hope for. This is the message that we preach week after week after week. Christ came, died, rose again to give us an eternal hope in Him. It's at the center of everything. That's all that matters. That's the only message we have. <laughs> Are you grateful for God's grace? Are you living day in and day out depending upon God's grace? Are you living for that day when God's grace will be fully revealed in His eternal kingdom? Now today, perhaps you're here and you don't know God's grace. You've never had God's grace come into your life. You've, 
maybe heard tell about it, but never have received it. See, that's the thing about God's grace. Like I said earlier, you can't earn it. You can't make God give it to you, but God freely offers it. He sent His Son to die for you. To give your, His life for you so that you might have life in Him. And He opens up the gift and He says, here it is. Here it is. You'll only receive it. There's nothing to do but receive it. If you're here today and you don't know the hope of everlasting life that you have in Jesus Christ, then let today be the day that you turn to God and receive the gift that He freely gives to you. Oh, Heavenly Father,